KRUI, Iowa City, this is Bijou Banter. Uh, everyone say your names and uh, test your mics at the same time. I'm Nate Corey. My name's Sam. My name is Molly. My name is Spencer. My mic sounds nice. My name's Eli Boonenvale. That's what the Beastie Boys used to do. They do my mic sounds nice. Well, your mic wasn't on, actually, when you started that statement, but I turned it on. So. <laughs> my name's Eli Boonenvale. I'm a master's student at the University of Iowa Department of Cinematic Arts. I, I have a quadruple doctorate in um, all the hardest subjects. Yeah. Uh, I'm leaving. Uh, <laughs> I live under a bridge. I haven't seen a single movie in my entire life. I think that's what Wittgenstein did for a long time, though, so don't worry. I'm already, I'm already off the rails right now. I can't hear anything. Oh, wait, really? I, can't, I think my, my thing's just all screwed up. Have you turned up your headphones? Got that knob. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. There, there we go. go. All right. Um, as you can see, there's there's some growing pains because we're back. First show of the semester. Back in there. We're talking about Mudbound and Call Me By Your Name. Seven to eight on a Friday, baby. Listen to yes. Listen this to this is be your banter before you pregame and go out. Yeah, that's this. This should be your new pregame ritual every weekend. This is your started uh, off with us. playlist. Yeah, this show needs more of a Yikes. morning zoo vibe. You need to really like. Let's, no, let, let's just shut that down. Bijou. <laughs> I'm down for that. Yeah. I'm. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let's get started, Molly. Um, we're gonna be starting off this episode of first episode of Second Semester Bijou Banter with uh, film Mudbound, which is a Netflix movie, I believe. I DVs released in 2016, like end of 2016. No, end of 2017. Now, as I understand it, this this is distributed by Netflix, but there was it, it was a Sundance darling at the beginning of 2017, mm-hmm. so about a year ago now, because Sundance is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, as far as I can tell, there was a bit of a bidding war between Annapurna and A24. Uh, over who would end up getting this film. And then one day, all the executives uh, at both of those distributors woke up to go get lunch, and Netflix had eaten it, as Netflix tends to do. Uh, so Netflix not only making films like Bright and trying to, <laughs> trying to hustle right, in uh... on, on, on the big stuff, but they're also kind of cutting in on that A24. Because I can imagine this film being distributed by A24, certainly, in a lineup with like Lady Bird or, or something of that nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. Um, basic synopsis of the film, which I have found difficult to recap to people when I've tried to do it. It's basically a historical piece that takes place, um, immediately after World War II, focusing on a, um, rural southern town, um, kind of juxtaposing two families, a white family and a black family. And the white family being, um, having moved to this rural village to kind of try out the farming lifestyle because the father is like i've always wanted to be a farmer so then they move they buy that they buy this huge crop of land even though they know nothing about farming and the black family that the film um also focuses on is kind of the um tenant farmer or a sharecropper of this farm so they their help comes with the purchase of the piece of land and it kind of juxtaposes these two experiences, both having sons or brothers that fought in World War II and the differences in experience for each for each character. And I, first impression, I really, really like this film a lot. Yeah. Why? Um, I thought it was really interesting uh, because it's like stylistically, I went in with a picture of like DV's films because the only other film I've seen by her is Pariah, which is a... 2011 film um that's contemporary about like young black lesbian kind of finding herself and stylistically mudbound is very very different like the aesthetics of it the style of it the editing the cinematography it's all so different that i was really struck by it immediately also it's just the way that like each character kind of comes to life on screen is really interesting as well but I want to get like reactions from everyone else too. I thought it was an interesting sort of almost like triptych of like intermingling narratives. I mean, you have obviously the white family that seems to be centered more than you know, the other narratives. And then you have the black family and then you have overseas, the two sons sort of 
grappling with their own, I mean, like wartime sort of fiascos mm -hmm. and then coming back home and realizing that really nothing else has changed. Um, mm -hmm. Especially for the, what's his, what was his name? The, um, the Oh, the son. Yeah. Mitchell. Jason Mitchell character. The, yeah, the yeah. black son. Oh, his Ronzel. name was like Rod, yeah. Ronzel. 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 <laughs> yeah, and it's sort of like, I found it the most interesting sort of aspect of the film is sort of grappling with the idea of being celebrated in like one place and like fighting for a country that like systematically has oppressed you. Mm -hmm. And you know, like carrying on the banner of that country in this war and then coming home and finding that like it's it's you're still being oppressed just as brutally as you were before you left and like nothing has like you've made some friends, but like well, ultimately feeling... that's not gonna protect you from the <laughs> majority of people in your small town who are very yeah. racist. The, the feeling between the people who in Europe and the feeling between the people in the United States is not mutual. Well, I mean, maybe maybe in that area, specific area, right. like in this Delta, Mississippi, Alabama area, it's I not the same. I do but... think the film tended to lean a little optimistically in terms of like Europe's view of like, yeah. black people <laughs> as well. I mean, it's made it seem sort of like this utopia for ethnic minorities and that's certain, I mean, when we look at yeah. colonialism, like that's not the case. Right. Um, um, it but... also seemed like they were very, very down with just just interracial mixing of all sorts. Right, and, yeah, and, and it uh, seemed a little... And I think that's naive. my one problem with the film is that it's juggling all of these narratives and like a two-hour runtime, which like you would assume is like a healthy amount of time for all of these stories, and yet there are relationships in the film that, for me, weren't fleshed out enough, particularly mm -hmm. the one between the two sons seemed mm -hmm. rushed. That, yeah. Yeah. This is definitely a film that wrestles it wrestles with a lot of different subject matter and so even though it does have that two-hour runtime uh it has this sprawling faulkner-esque southern saga structure that makes it such that things are really condensed even though visually this is not a condensed film i, I and i, I want to speak to the cinematography a little because rachel morrison was the director of photography on this she was just nominated for an academy award for her work on this she's previous first woman right first yeah, woman first ever woman. previously of uh, fruitvale station uh, coming up Black Panther. Coming up Black Panther. I'm very excited to see how she can go from a $10 million budget to a $180 million budget and see if she can balance the, uh, that. Because, I mean, uh, there are con there are visual tethers to uh, Fruitvale Station. She made some really smart choices on Mudbound. I think visually, uh, it's an anamorphic film. She used mostly Panavision, C&D series lenses. Uh, there was a good write-up of her in the uh, International Cinematographers Guild magazine. Um, and... Uh, I want both this and Call Me by Your Name. Interestingly, were both filmed during historically rainy seasons. Uh, despite being, you know, it shows in Mudbound. It doesn't show in Call Me by Your Name, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, but I, I think visually, the decisions that she made, using anamorphic, but still having a lot of gimbal and handheld, and uh, dealing with the kind of the darkness and the murkiness of the film the, the, this film deserves to be called mudbound visually mud and and grime and, and uh, Carrie Mulligan is just like caked in grime like this whole film and uh visually i found it really interesting because it would be very easy in the wrong hands for this film to be quite ugly uh, visually, not just in like a subject matter way, but in a genuinely visual way, it could be boring, ugly. Uh, but the but the use of color, uh, she she smartly she bumped up the ISO on her camera a little bit, which uh, will allow you to shoot in darker conditions, but it'll add a little bit of grain to the film quality. Uh, and additionally, I read that they put some some grain effects on in post. Uh, and it, there's just this really interesting. Uh, juggling of, of light and dark in in the contrasts of the visuals of this film that almost entirely carried through the whole way. The only visual complaint I had throughout the whole film was that uh, there are some aerial sequences where we're supposed to believe that a character's in an airplane, and I don't know if there was like a second unit that was filming that or something, but it was just totally uninspired. Uh, really, I, I had just watched uh, Clint Eastwood's Sully prior to watching that, which has like some of the best aerial photography I've ever seen in my life, and I just could not realistically believe that uh, the actor was actually in an airplane in a war uh, during those sequences, which was too bad because the, the ground sequences uh, involving um, Ronzel's character uh, is is uh, are convincingly stressful and, and do give you a sense of wartime Europe uh, and the aerial photography just left something to be desired but everything else in this film is 
uh, gorgeous. I really liked this film. This film has a really dense use of its of, of this anamorphic visual, and I watched it uh, as Netflix wanted me to on the treadmill in the uh, uh, University of Iowa Recreation Center, and it still looked amazing. Yeah, I think the cinematography is really smart in the way that it frames both families and like the use of lighting. So in the black family, the lighting is very, there's like a very warm glow that seems to mirror kind of like the family unit itself where like mm-hmm. everyone is sort of collectively like yeah, kind of around under that, this. Yeah, around that dinner table. I found that. Yeah, there's like a warmth there, there yeah. and they're all sort of fighting the same fight and there's like not a homogenous sort of struggle, but there's like an understanding between everyone and everyone knows how everyone is doing. There's like a lot of empathy at that table. And then in the other house, there's like very dour, like lighting everyone sort of dealing with their own personal, I guess, like struggle and everyone's not communicating and there's like a distance between each person. And I think the lighting in that like really kind of reflects mm-hmm. that too. And so, I, I, yeah, I really appreciate and you, like and you can kind of say that, that you, you based on the setting about how how broken like each of those homes are. I mean, we see um, in the Jackson family, who who is the black family in the film, um, they they all live in the same house, and they they have more people. I think who live they have more people who live in that house than the other family. I can't remember what their last name was. Um, but the, the white, white family. Yeah, but the, but then they have that kind of separate off building where the the dad lives for a while, and then the the other son, when he comes back from war, lives in the while. And the main, and then the, the father of that family leaves for a while. And it's just very the, the family never seems like they're, as I said, they're they're like together. And they're mm-hmm. and you can see that obviously, um, even in the, in the lighting and the cinematography, but even just in the setting where they have the two separate houses. Nate, can we can we talk about just performances in this film? Because I feel like across the board, almost everyone is. I think Carrie Mulligan puts in, if not the performance of her lifetime, definitely one of her best. And I I really like Carrie Mulligan, but I think. Um, Everyone's talking about uh, Mary J. Blige, who was nominated. Mm-hmm. Uh, every, everybody loves her. I also want to briefly spotlight uh, Rob Morgan, who's the father, uh, the, the husband of Mary J. Blige in this film. Who's oh, Hab Jackson, yeah. Yeah, Hab he, Jackson. Yeah. He is remarkable. And he, he uh, Robert Morgan is... What, what's funny is that he is kind of Netflix's go-to character actor. He plays Turk in all of the Marvel Netflix shows. He's this, this side character who pops up. He's also on Stranger Things. He's one of the deputies. Uh, he shows up in a lot of Netflix stuff, and this film was not made for Netflix. It was yeah. acquired by Netflix, so it's like he can't escape Netflix. <laughs> but I think he's... Uh, uh, I, I like him as Turkey. Uh, I, I, I've enjoyed him, but I think he is... Uh, just short of a revelation in this film. I think he has very few scenes where he can really shine, but he uh, is so subtle and so perfect in this role, and I would really like to see him uh, get a little bit more groundswell out of this. I thought he was just terrific in this film. Agreed. Um, yeah, I think you you guys have all touched on a lot of the good qualities of the film. I would say that one of my um, one of the, one of the drawbacks for me was the editing, and I, I think that has to do with what Spencer said um, with regards to um, kind of the the speed of the movie and the length. I, th- I think the movie should have been an hour longer because there's you have this huge epic um, sweep, but yeah. you don't really get much time for the characters to interact as an ensemble. Or um, the there there are some great performances, but I wish we would have had more time to see um, the details of these characters' lives. And the there's all these these great voiceovers that that do a lot for the film, but I wish we would have had more of each character and then more of the characters together. Because outside of the first few sequences, you don't see um, Carrie Mulligan and her husband even interact that much after yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Until you only see them talk the like twice. Yeah. Yeah. And I think yeah. I think I think Nate, Nate, Nate brings up a good thing with the voiceover, and um, you probably know all know this, but the movie obviously is adapted from uh, a novel by the same name. And I think that's an, another region where this movie shines a lot is this adapted screenplay and kind of bringing in this very like almost like it's like an audiobook kind of reading over over the. Uh, over the film, I thought that was another really great strength, and it's just the very the subtlety and the kind of like the very slow pace of the words and the, and the monologues and the uh, just the voiceover. I thought was really kind of grounded the film a lot too, and it kind of it gave us uh, it gave us something we didn't see. And it put it which, in a, which is obviously yeah. the point of a voiceover, but um, it put it in a literary tradition as well with yeah. other Southern sagas that struggle with race: Zora Neale Hurston, Alice Walker. 
uh, Toni Morrison, these sorts of novels, I think. Uh, Dee Reese uh, co-wrote the screenplay, I believe, with the author of the novel. Um, and yeah, I, 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 voiceover is always um, a very fine line to walk because if you do it too much, it becomes too obvious. If you do it too little, it feels not well paced like it comes in and it cuts out and we forget that there is voiceover then suddenly there is and I definitely did feel myself noticing that as I watched the film that like there would be these extended periods where there would be no voiceover and then there would be voiceover from a different character than the last person that we heard um it's not a perfect film uh but I I do think ultimately there are a lot of films that are trying to do what Mudbound does when it comes to wrestling with the history of race in this country uh and very few films do it as well as Mudbound does I would agree. Yeah, mm-hmm. I thought the I really liked the voiceover. Although I I do agree, I, I wanted a little bit more of it, especially like as the film went on, it seemed to kind of like drop out mm-hmm. because I think it gave the film, which would have like a, a meditative quality almost. Whenever the voiceover came yes. in, it was very um like it got a lot more poetic in a film that otherwise I think would have been very very harsh and maybe like m- more of like a a mellow drama it, it is it still is kind of like as like yeah. the the feel of a mellow drama but it made it much more meditative and i remember when i was watching it in the middle when like you know i thought like this is it kind of feels like a terrence malick film in, in in a way but like not as like um grand and like sweeping or whatever, like in the way that um Terrence Malick film. I mean, it's, it's I, not like I, dreamy. I, I, it's, yeah, like a, it's yeah. like a Terrence Malick film if you remove roughly seventy five percent of the light. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I really, I, I like the voiceover a lot. I thought I wish that there had been more of it, and I wish that there had been more from more characters because the voiceover principally comes from the um, main female white female actor, and I really liked her voiceover. I wanted more voiceover from Mary J. Blige because I. I, that was another relationship I wanted. Off. Yeah, yeah I, that was another relationship I wanted more of was between Mary J. Blige and um, Mary, Mary J. Blige's character and the Carrie Mulligan. Yeah, Carrie Mulligan. Because I thought that was really interesting. There's like a few moments when they like interact, like when when she like, has her when like her kids yeah. have whooping cough and then like they her. come out and then like she comes and she helps them and I thought that was really interesting. I wanted more of it. Yeah, I think it's interesting too the way like I think it was really again, smart how the film depicts racism in sort of, like, different levels. Like, you have the grandfather character who's just, like, an outright (laughs) racist through and through. And I think that performance is interesting. uh, Yeah, because that performance itself could have fallen so easily into sort of caricature of what we, like, assume a racist is. But then Mm -hmm. you have Carrie Mulligan's husband. I'm blanking on the actor's name. Just the shovel-faced whitest man. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, oh, Jason Mitchell, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he's, he's just cardboard. He, his like his character is Wait, like no Jason Clark. 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 Jason Mitchell was his, Ronso. Was Ronso. Ronso. Okay. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Jason Clark. Very, very different. Yeah. Very very different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cool. Jason Clark. Um, and then like one his character is one if you want. His racism is like it's very prominent, but it comes out in different ways and for that like a, I almost yeah. think it's even more sinister than it's almost like of, a mob mentality pure pressure kind of racism there's where less it's like, transparency you know. there but it's still very present even in sort of asking you know even the confidence of going to a land and thinking that you can just tame it without any exactly. training like yeah. the ego involved in that decision that kind of sort of well, like you know like right. there's a certain like whiteness provides that kind of confidence for, and it's like I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I, I just, I know when you were giving like the synopsis, for some reason when I thought when they went back, I thought that was their farm. I thought that was her, their grandfather's farm. I, I thought it was like, it, it was, but then they left it and then he decided to go back because he was like, no, this is, this is a, this is or, a farm or it was, that he or was a purchased. Farm. But the, the, one, I, one, of the, um, one of the best lines in the film is, is when there's a voiceover from the Jason Clark character and he's talking about, um, an interaction he had with his grandfather who had been a, a plantation owner mm-hmm. during slavery. And he says, what I'm holding in my hand isn't dirt, it's land because yeah. I own it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And when you hold it, it's dirt because you don't own it, but someday it'll be land because you'll own it. And one of the, I think one of the best narrative things about this film, the best thing about its screenplay is the way that it shows how people of color are burdened by the idiocy and arrogance of white people in this film. That, that, 
because Jason Clark's character just decides that this is what he can do, and he suffers for it. He does suffer for his mistakes, but not as much as the people of color who ultimately are burdened with his decisions. Uh, so the, the the layers of burdening that are happening in this film, I think, are really. I think it's ultimately the film's greatest strength and what what makes it valuable as a as as a historical reflection in addition to a, an artistic statement. Well, even sort of like Garrett Hedlund's almost complicit, like sort of like he we see that he's outwardly sort of like against the racist practices of like the grandfather and even sort of um, detests how Jason Clark's character is sort of like acts and behaves. And yet there's never a, like a cathartic moment where he, where we see him actually stand up to that sort of injustice. It's sort mm-hmm. of like in his sort of drunken stupor, he almost just like gives up or like lets the cards fall where they are, which in like Jason Mitchell's character's case is like mutilation. Right. And there's sort of like, I'm like with you up until a certain point and then Mm -hmm. when suddenly like it's my life at stake it's like all bets are off and now I refuse to participate and sort of that um sort of like that protection that I was Mm -hmm. seemingly providing before I thought it was um interesting because this is kind of like a theme that like I think pops up a lot when you study like race in like history is that even if like a character is not like outwardly racist like the you know, like a white person, the stakes are always lower for them in, in especially in this film and I think throughout like history, if you study people, that even like a white person that is like going out of their way, like is being nice as um the brother figure is to Ronzel, like the stakes are always lower for him. Him, him hanging out with Ronzel and being friends with him, like he's gonna go home and like you know get yelled at by his father, like oh you shouldn't hang out with. Black it's people. almost framed as like a rebellion. Yeah, yeah, but then like for Ron, but like for Ronzel, like the like the consequences are like you will be lynched, you will be killed, you will be mutilated, and so and like it's kind of like you kind of see how the um brothers like he he, he can't understand that difference in stakes. He's like well like what can he do to you? That I'm like, well, he could, the audience like, well, he could kill you. He could yeah. kill Ronzel. He's not going to kill you, most likely. Like, because you're, one, you're white, two, you're his own son. Yeah, there's, like, a fundamental misunderstanding of, like, what brotherhood is between right. them in the sense of, like, it seems so often that Garrett and Hedlund's relationship with Jason Mitchell's character, it's, like, propping Jason Mitchell's character up in a way that sort of is, like, an act of rebellion to sort of show off to the parents of, like, I am this is like me rebelling against you and mm-hmm. the black person that I'm friends with is like a prop to show you that that is exactly what mm-hmm. I'm doing. And there's sort of like a removal of humanity of that sort of like friendship mm-hmm. as like a result of that sort of m- maneuver. And I think this is one of the benefits of this film being a $10 million independent production as opposed to something like a 50 or $60 million, you know, Fox Searchlight picture. Uh, because I can see this film out of the hands of filmmakers of color who are very conscious of what they're trying to construct here, turning the, the, the Garrett character into a white savior. And he's not. He's not a white savior. He easily could have been in the wrong hands, and he's not. And it's another thing to this film's credit that uh, it is able to have this character uh, who is nuanced, who does see you know, where the, the future of race is hopefully heading in this country and, and, is, and is upset with the historical conditions that he's surrounded by. But at the same time, he is not um, supposed to make white audiences feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. He is mm-hmm. not there to placate us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the film really shows that sort of like decency isn't enough when you consider the power structures at play, like the way mm-hmm. that Garrett Hedlund interacts with all of like the white people and sort of like the way that that is... Respectful, the way that he treats Jason Mitchell's character is, like, the same, and that's not... And the film recognizes that that, like, equal treatment is not enough considering where, like, Jason right. Mitchell stands in the hierarchy of, like, yeah. the society. Yeah. I, I totally agree, but I also think that the, the scenes between Jason Mitchell and Garrett Hedlund are, like, very touching. And, like, that they actually Absolutely. have a genuine yeah, friendship. But then empathy. there's also, the, like, I, which is part of the complexity of that relationship, which made... Like, that was definitely my favorite part of the film. And I think right. the film's statement there is to say that this kind of beautiful relationship, which should be allowed to blossom, is being murdered in the womb by the historical conditions that surround right. it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I would agree. Like, all the scenes between those two, when they're kind of at, like, that 
old house and they're like they are finally finding someone that they can like talk to about their experiences at war because they're both suffering pretty severely from like forms of ptsd J um Ronzel also adding on to that like he left his like Ger german yes lover belgian belgian She's German. She's German. Oh, okay. Yeah, German. Sorry. Lover. So, like, add, add, like, another layer of, like, emotion onto that. It was really um, special. And also, that kind of like, comes up again with Carrie Mulligan's character, but in, like, a really different way. Where with Carrie Mulligan's, like, character, you get, like, some like a white person who is decent, means the best. And then, like, I would say, like, she's not really, like, she doesn't really do anything wrong. In fact, Mary J. Blige's character, like meant like comments like well, not all like white people are awful because she like extends a hand of kindness out i don't like i thought that was really interesting i think I carrie mulligan is kind of in this position where she does not mean harm but any misfortune that befalls her will inevitably befall this family of color as well yeah and mm -hmm. so that puts her in this very difficult situation where she clearly doesn't want to harm this family but she does by by having a sick child she ends up making this this mother leave her family right and mm -hmm. that's not Carrie Mulligan's fault and so i think this the, right again this is a film where we see narrativized all of these power structures and themes uh, that are run so deep in American culture and in our history uh, played out in this family saga that really works. And even the the relationship between these two GIs who are coming home, I think, is an interesting reflection on the integration of the military that takes place shortly before the end of the war and how that affected uh, social conventions moving back and how that brushes up against the, the Jim Crow South and, and the, the social conventions that were uh, uh, imparted by that structure. So... Uh, yeah, I, 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 this was genuinely one of my favorite films uh, of 2017. Uh, I, I really, I, I wish it had been nominated for more. I understand why it wasn't. Partially just I think the Netflix cachet is not quite there yet. Um, but I, I was, I think there are complaints to have about this film, but uh, th there are a few films I think that came out this year that were more meaningful, more well executed, and more, and, or had better performances uh, than this film. Sorry, I didn't mean to. No. I didn't mean to lend so much finality to that declaration. <laughs> I mean, no. that's that's all right. Um, but I mean, I mean, you guys basically hit on all the good points. I mean, but I mean, I think what Eli first off, I mean, kind of just going away from the film, just kind of talking about just the film industry in general, is is that this is and what I want to talk about about, about the film because obviously we all think it's very great and it's very it is a very amazing film that has insane high points and, and should be noted if you're if you're a big fan of historical dramas. Um, oh my god, I just turned my mic up really loud. Um, but <clears throat> is the the Netflix, obviously we talked about the distribution there, and, and getting into this, like, I, I'm, I'm very interested in, like, this new area of kind of how, where Netflix films, especially Amazon Studios, those are the two really big online streaming ones we've seen, getting actual real critical award season nominations and stuff like that. Like, obviously, last year we had Manchester by the Sea, which was, you know, on Amazon Studios, and we had this year with, with like, Big Sick and stuff like that. But those movies are still being, they're not streaming exclusive. Right, they had yeah, conventional they had theatrical, theatrical releases. releases. Theatrical releases. Yeah. But this is a streaming exclusive movie that was shown probably only at um, like Sundance. They ran, yeah. they had to do the, before, the, the Oscar before they, were, before they were picked up by Netflix. And I think this is maybe one of the first real streaming exclusive films that has been like widely nominated and critically accepted i mean not, maybe not mm -hmm. i think it had a, like a very short run in la yeah obviously. well I, yeah. It, it did it mm -hmm. to be to, to qualify be qualified for the I, I want to talk about this too both as a netflix film and as a sundance darling because i think this film uh, whether fairly or not is going to inevitably exist in conversation with a, a sundance darling of the year prior to that which was the birth of a nation yeah which was also a film that very much sold itself on race, and then had this kind of ignominious implosion because it's it the the filmmaker had allegations of sexual assault levied against him that ultimately kind of tore the film's reputation apart. It was also just a lesser film, though. right? Well, like. but, but, but what I want to say to that point is that Birth of a Nation was in this situation where I think we had a Sundance that was full of these guilty, nervous white people who were clamoring for a film that would uh, relieve them of their sins. 
And that was a film that was getting standing ovations ju with just trailers, without without the the actual film screening. And so I think Mudbound. Uh, I, I'm happy to see Mudbound succeed where Birth of a Nation kind of the, the Birth of a Nation failed, uh, because I think ultimately it's it's a it's a much superior film. It's obviously not tainted by the same sort of scandal, uh, but it's it's just it's just more deserving and winning in in a lot of respects. And I think. Um, talking about there is this kind of thing the Sundance film it's not a genre but it's kind of this cloud that yeah. that, that that hovers over uh, it's your, your indie comedies and in, in small you know right small I, but not actually and I small think, it's like the first stop on the hype train right yeah. exactly I've been I've been uh, very aboard the current Sundance hype train right now. Uh, Jason uh, Mitchell uh, Ronzel is is currently in a, a film that's getting really glowing reviews at Sundance called uh, Tyrell that is also um heavily about race or sort of people are comparing it to get out um and uh i it's interesting seeing how sundance which has been criticized in the past as being kind of this bastion of white filmmaking is now kind of grappling with the current political realities that we're tr we're all struggling to adjust with in some ways and sort of trying to recognize its own privilege in in uh making space for films like mudbound yeah. i mean that, i mean obviously i just wanted to just kind of hit on that point about this film being a Netflix film and just seeing it's something to keep an eye out because I know I know the one I'm blanking on the name I think it's called Mute it's coming out pretty soon by hmm. the same director who did Moon um, oh really David Bowie's son sure yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah and I, I'm just very interested in seeing and maybe uh, and seeing how future because obviously we know like the Bright was very well watched but was destroyed by critics. Um, but just seeing how Netflix movies and even Amazon's, maybe if Amazon will actually do only streaming exclusive movies, I don't think they're there yet where they have the large, they have, they have a larger yeah. streaming audience like Netflix does. But I'm, I'm interested in seeing how, how critics and how awards and like Hollywood foreign press and how the, and the, uh, the Academy will see these films. Absolutely. And I, I, right now I think, I think they consider them as technically lesser films. Or is this like a variety sideshow? Yeah. That like, and there's a reason I brought up A24 and Annapurna earlier, because mm -hmm. A24 and Annapurna are the kind of dis distributors and studios that the Academy loves, right? These are principled, critically acclaimed, uh, discerning studios and distributors who are looking for a je ne sais quoi, right? They're looking for these kinds of films that ultimately will get these kinds of awards. And to see Netflix swoop in and pick one out f away from them in this way, I think is telling. I think it, it speaks to, and it's, you know, I brought up Bright, you brought up Bright. Bright was not only a film that was torn apart critically, but it was also specifically uh, singled out for not handling issues of race well, whereas Mudbound obviously does. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm uh, interested to see, I'm, I, I am also interested to see what direction these these streaming platforms will continue on critically? Admittedly, Netflix is in a more precarious economic situation. Than, and I think it's one of those realize. things too, where it's one of those things where we've seen this a lot with TV a lot too. Is Netflix will go after creators and say, "Hey, we can give you more creative control yeah. than what a studio can, and we can give you a, maybe less money, but you can have more control." And that's where. Maybe your lesser-known directors. Um, obviously, I'm not. I don't know the name of the guy who directed Moon. Um, but obviously, D. Reese isn't. You know, she's not. She did. She directed for HBO previously. Yeah, I mean, but she's. Not, but, but she's yeah. not a widely known. Like, if you walk to someone on the New York Iowa streets, yeah. and like, hey, who's yeah. D. Reese? They're not gonna know who she is. Yeah. Um, but they that's, might not know who David think, Fincher is either. Yeah. Well, or like the guy who made Moon was like Duncan. Like, Duncan whatever. Jones. Like, he didn't yeah. he make Warcraft too. So yeah. it's just that like, movie made so much money in <laughs> China. If you if you if like that movie, people dunk on Warcraft because it was bad and no one watched it here. But that movie actually made a ton of money. Okay, getting beside the point, but it, 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 I think it's something to look forward to the future and, and seeing how Netflix will pick off high. And we're gonna see it with Martin Scorsese's new The Irishman, which obviously mm, yeah they're picking off. You can see they're picking off high caliber directors and, and directors who have famous past and being like, hey, we can give you more creative control and do what you want. Yeah, yeah. On to Climbing by Your Name. And no one's allowed to mention Bright ever again on this show. <laughs> I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. I refuse. <laughs> I will so, not. So Correct. Just by principle, we shouldn't talk about it because none of us have actually seen it. So for its own benefit, we shouldn't talk about it. Call Me By Your Name. Call Me yes. By Your Name. Our next film, the last one we'll be discussing. Who's doing the intro? Don't we have... I, mean, I can't pronounce the director's do? name, so not me. Luca, Luca Guadagnino. Luca Guadagnino. Luca 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 <laughs> Tiffany, <laughs> Tiffany Haddish destroyed his name during the nominations. It was so funny. Luca Guadagnino. 
Guaranino, yeah. Guaranino. 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 The G is silent. Not all. One of the G's is silent. There are. There are... <laughs> Luca Guatemala. Luca Guatemala. His name is Luca Guadagnino. Okay. Um, also came out during 2017. Uh, Late 2017 you... as well. Yeah. Right? You... Oh. Sundance Darling. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Was it? Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yep. Mm-hmm. Almost everyone has heard of this. Um, if you are into the movie scene at all, it's been much buzzed about. Another ah. Sony picture yeah. classic <laughs> coming at us. 1983, romance, northern Italy. Affluent white people. Yeah. Yep. yep. Very, oh, very, v- very sweet bubble of just relaxing and Pre-aids. reading books. A, a <laughs> bubble which I kind of want to burst, but I'll let everyone else uh, <laughs> say their piece first. Okay, so who? Uh, I can. Okay, I'll go. Okay. Spencer. I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> um, so bear with me and go, I'm going to try to go. be as articulate as I can but essentially I, while I admire the film's technical prowess um, and sort of the cinematography I feel is very lush and very beautiful and gorgeous and sort of even the way that characters court desire I find to be incredibly like touching and moving however it's just like there's sort of the canon of queer like cinema, I always take issue with films that exist in a bubble that relate to so few people or like that are in conversation with like very few like queer narratives that are recognizable by like the majority of queer people. And so this film to me fell flat because the film refuses to acknowledge the way that power structures infiltrate the relationship between Elio and Oliver in a way that is irresponsible solely based on sort of like the intellectual gap that the film like portrays between them. But then also, I mean, there's been a lot of controversy surrounding, you know, like the age difference in the novel, um, Oliver's 24, Elio's 17. In 1983, the consent laws in Italy are like 14. So like legally, there's I, I like think, nothing I wrong there. I think they still are. Yeah. So like legally, there's not <laughs> an issue. I have, I take issue with the film stance that somehow those power structures aren't important in sort of examining how the relationship unfolds and how the relationship unfolds um is there are manipulations that occur that make the stakes for both characters extremely different um so for instance we have oliver who's this like very arrogant grad student adonis character stop talking um (laughs) played by army hammer who like to me is always just going to look like them and it's like yeah. flat regardless <laughs> and it's like i think this is one of his better performances that i've seen and yet somehow it still tell? didn't click for me um and there's like the young like a very intellectual um 17 year old elio who like is like profoundly privileged and like comes from a family that like can take these lavish vacations in italy and like he can play the piano like a like a prodigy and like knows so many languages um, and the film sort of is, explores how Elio is like grappling with sexuality and like discovering himself and then brings in Oliver who sort of disrupts this exploratory period and like the film wants us to believe that their love is beautiful and their love is pure and I like I don't like I, there's something about it that I just don't I can't get on board with and I think it's that doesn't acknowledge that Oliver essentially has all of the cards in the relationship and is able to maneuver certain desires that Elio projects and sort of is able to manipulate those. And there's like this weird thing where throughout the film, Oliver is constantly um, alluding to or like like appraising Elio's intelligence almost as if to sort of like build him up as an equal. And the film itself never like makes it, I feel kind of clear that like these two like aren't equals in the slightest in terms of lived experience and I think it's the irresponsibility comes in is that for Oliver this relationship is like an experience that he has and we can sort of deduce that this is probably not his first interaction or like not first romantic relationship with a man we can assume at at, on some level he's more practiced obviously and so for him, it's sort of like the six-week vacation that he's allotted, like gives him a chance to experience something that is like very beautiful to him, very real for him. And I don't deny that those things are beautiful and real for him. But for Elio, going through like a very formative period, the stakes are so much different and, dare I say, almost traumatic even. Like this is like an experience that he's going to carry with him for the rest of his life. Oliver gets to escape back to heteronormativity and sort of flourish beneath that umbrella 
and sort of leaves Elio sort of to sort through the mess of what it means to be growing up and also grappling with sort of repressed sexuality because this is the 80s. I mean, it's not mm -hmm. like there are, you can just be like open sort of in like in that kind of way. And it, like the film also uses, this is like tangential, but the film uses like almost like their Jewishness as like, yeah, trying I, to, as, as like as like a crux to talk about sexuality in coded ways, like the way that they talk about being Jews is like runs parallel to sort of like how you would expect people to talk about press sexuality. Sort of like we're discreet, we're like we're good, but like we we're not like showy about it, and we don't want to be showy about it. There's just like a lot of like I have. Uh, I can't. There's something that leaves a sour taste in my mouth. It's funny because I had a sour taste in my mouth as well with this film. I think for similar reasons, but distinct reasons. And I think uh, you mentioned that these are all very privileged people. And for me, it's not just that this film fails to interrogate its privilege. I think this film is actively in love with its privilege mm -hmm. to a certain extent. And the fact that this film is kind of this queer romance bubble that is is very lovey-dovey and so so glamorous and utopian... Uh, but it's taking place in 1983, which is kind of a landmark year for AIDS in the United States. And I, I could not stop thinking about just how escapist and privileged and, and just fundamentally white and, and upsetting this film was for me. Because I think ultimately the message of this film was ju just be rich and precocious and don't don't think about it too much. Just 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 the the world is just one big fruit for you to pleasure yourself with. And don't don't uh, don't think about it. And uh, I, yeah, I was I was bothered by this film in many ways. I think the, the cinematography is um, unbelievable. I think Sayamhu Mukdeepram, who's the director of photography on it, was not nominated, um, which is astonishing to me because I think this is one of the best uses of, of 35 millimeter that I've seen in years. Um, and he was previously of uh, Uncle Boonmi, who can recall his past lives, the, the Thai film that won the Palme d'Or at Cannes in 2010. That was actually shot on 16 millimeter and still looked amazing. I think he's, he's um, I've only seen those two films that he's done, but they're, they're, they're both gorgeous. But I, ultimately I found this film a vapid, shiny, blithe mess that uh, really, yeah, it, 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 um, it left me feeling... Uh, unimpressed and and kind of saddened i um disagree i liked this film yeah um, no I, i'm in the I, minority for sure i thought the um kind of privilege that is shown in this was like for to me it felt very like escapist but like not in like a like a bad like a, a negative connotation as as you are saying but more in like this land like this world that they live in it's like a fantasy world yeah, like it it is sure. it is like it's not, it doesn't exist on, for me, the, the whole movie does not exist on like a physical plane. This is like transcendental. This is like Garden of Eden. There's even like a shot where like he picks like a, an apricot or a peach that like it looks like, like a frame of like a Renaissance painting of, you know, of being in the Garden of Eden. And in that way, I thought this film was kind of a queer retelling of a lot of heterosexual romances where like mm. a like a like young 16 year old girl goes to like florida coast for like spring break falls or like summer break falls in love with a hot lifeguard they have this passionate romance and then she has to go back to like minnesota or wherever and she tells <laughs> all her friends like how romantic it was and no one believes her but like it happened like it kind of felt like that and in that way like i actually i really i found myself really enjoying the film when i viewed it in that way because um I agree with you, Spencer, though, that the romance for Oliver didn't, to me, feel as serious or, like, as, like, kind of, um, serious isn't the right word, but, like, the, it, the, the stakes, stakes aren't are, as high. Yeah, the stakes are very different for Oliver and Elio, where, like, for Elio, as you said, this is, like, formative years. He's just beginning to discover his sexuality. Oliver, had, like, Oliver, we get the feeling, is is either confident or like is very comfortable where he is. And you see that he's like toying with him almost at some points. Yeah, it's very film. cat and mouse at times. Especially like with, because in, in Oliver, you could say he is the cat. I mean, obviously yeah. uh, with the whole with with the peach and and with yeah. uh, when they're in in the doorway, he's. I think he. I mean. But I think the film is kind of playing it off like it's playful. Yeah. Yeah. It is, at least yeah. in my reading of it. it, it I, yeah. I think and it is playful, though. I, there's nothing sinister about, yeah, he's, about Oliver. He's not malicious. And, right. And, no, that and therein yet. lies the problem. <laughs> but I, I disagree. I don't, I don't think it is a problem. Um, like, I, 
I see where you're coming from, Spencer, but I don't I don't see any type of power and balance between them. Um, because like I, I think I think Elio is smarter than Oliver. He's just not as confident. And I think that um, you're you're right that the stakes aren't as high, but I think that's the point. I think that's the whole point of the ending being so tragic for Elio is that it wasn't as high. At the same time, when you when you when you were saying that like it's it's easier for Oliver to go back to his regular life, there's a line at the very end of the film that I think is key when he um, says like I could never come out to my parents if my parents knew I would like disowned basically mm-hmm. yeah and like so sent to an i don't think so it's like right. it's even worse than disowned yeah it's so it's it's not exactly like all hunky-dory for him to, to go back but that's also the only life. time in the film where queerness is acknowledged as existing outside of this bubble and i yeah. think that's sort of my problem as too. being in danger like who like when we think about queer cinema like who gets to have these sort of formative beautiful romantic moments on screen and like who is allotted that sort of growing period i mean it's all like in the history of queer cinema it's always been sort of these affluent white characters who get the space to explore that sexuality in a way that is comfortable or like in a way that is acknowledged by sort of people around them and like elevated like you have the father character in this movie who i think is like a very interesting character and yet like the speech at the end that he gives, it was like so overwritten to me and like so fantastic scene. I did not. Oh, I thought buy it was. It for a I second. thought it was so condescending. I like, it oh, was, it's okay because the straight patriarch. It seems like the film acknowledges he, that it's subverting yeah. the expectation that the father should be. No, we don't want this. And then it's like, no, the father's like very accepting and that's beautiful. And then it just like fucking like. Sorry. It's condescending. It's like a hammer. I think it's condescending. <laughs> I I completely disagree. I I think you're reading that scene so cynically. I was very cynical well, as a about queer, this film. Like, I don't know. As, like, I guess there is sort of like a cynicism that I have. But also, like, there's... I think the scene is interesting to me in that it almost makes it seem like the dad, in a way, is coming out too. That's, and that's, yeah. like, something that I found really interesting. Yeah. yeah. And it frames the family dynamic very differently. He mentions having had right. an experience. And that part, I, yeah, I think was valuable and interesting. Right. Yeah. I would have liked more of that and less sort of, like... Be yourself. Follow it your dreams. It seemed very like hashtag it gets better, which I feel like now we've acknowledged is sort of like a very... It gets better for some people. Yeah. yeah. Privileged. Yeah. I think my feelings about this film were crystallized after I saw it and I read um, Molly Haskell. God, God love her. She's a foundational film critic. She had a review of it in Film Comment. Great review. That, no. Fantastic Drove me review. up the wall. The opening of that review says... Call Me By Your Name is very similar to Moonlight because both of them take place outside the spectrum of middle-class queer experience, which is the most irresponsible line of argument I can possibly think of. To say that Moonlight, which is a fantastic film that completely confronts the issues that I think I had with Call Me By Your Name, is similar to Call Me By Your Name because they're both not middle-class, seems insane to me. Well, you're simplifying the argument. She's not even saying that they're similar at all. She begins by saying it falls in line with Moonlight. There's there's a comparison because the to the two films have been very popular and they both do different. But she like explicitly she talks about how they do, are doing different. She draws a comparison things. between the two, and they are fundamentally different films. And one of them suffers from a lot of flaws, and the other does not. I, I disagree, but I mean, list, listeners Molly can, can go been, read the review. Molly been goofing for up hard recently in my book. She had a thing on the Film Comment podcast where she was talking about Me Too, and oh boy, she is starting to sound like a very different generation to me. I I also disagree. I, I think that's a great. Um, episode of the podcast and I think Molly Haskell is still in it I was gonna say a bad word but it's the radio it's the radio yeah no I, I thought her re- I already accidentally dropped I'm sorry I, I, I thought her review oh. of, of this film was genuinely irresponsible in some ways and I do I'm, I think I'm, I'm I'm raking her over the coals a little bit because I do understand the point she was trying to make about Moonlight which is that and she does acknowledge that these two films exist at the opposite ends of the spectrum but she doesn't really do anything with that analysis. She just acknowledges it and then moves on to say how they're similar. And I don't appreciate that comparison. I think Moonlight is a fantastic film that does grapple with privilege in relation to queerness. And this is a film that actively wants to escape that dialectic. What Fair enough. Think, I, I disagree. I'm going to play the grand spot really quick because we're supposed to. Oh, and then we'll, we'll come back with the other stuff. Wait, what, this, what is, a, wait this is seven, right? We're, we're in the seven to eight. We're in the seven okay. to eight slot. Yeah. Great. Okay. One sec.
Support for CareUI is brought to you in part by The Broken Spoke. They offer new and used bicycles, cycling accessories, and also service all kinds of bikes. They can be found in Iowa City at their new address, 757 South Gilbert Street. For more information, visit thebrokenspoke.com or call 319-338-8900. Conversation about me too. But she was making a larger point. I know, but she did it poorly. She's <laughs> falling off the bed. I, you're not okay, going to get me I, back I on the Sam, Molly Haskell train. You're the one. You started it. <laughs> okay, Sam. Uh, you, we haven't heard from you yet. Give us. Give yeah. Us your, hit us with that. Your side hit us with those takes. You're the, you're the deciding vote on the um, consensus. The yeah. The, deciding vote on what? On whether or not whether you get to decide for the people of Iowa yeah. City whether or not Call Me By Your Name is a good film. <laughs> oh, I thought it was a good film. Boo. Victory. <laughs> I thought it was a great film. I thought it was. It's a very. It's a film. It's it's it's. I don't know. It's one of those. It's one of those films. Films where it's just very yes, very. Great. I think Molly brought up a good point of like this very Garden of Eden. It's very you know, kind of the areas over the top and that. I, I kind of. I mean. That is one, I think, one of the, the reasons why a lot of people love film so much is they like to be taken away to, you know, these magical places, and especially as like a, as almost like a layman kind of viewer that, I mean, obviously all of us have, have really in-depth experience with film studies, film analysis, and filmmaking in general. Um, but I mean, I, I like to think, I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, I, sometimes I like to think about, about how some people see who aren't in a film studies or a film like analysis perspective and i think when you look i mean i, I know we're not just looking at this i, I am going to look at it from just a, a real basic point of view and obviously we already went into like this more in-depth kind of view about it like spencer and eli were talking about i mean it's it's a very it's a very very beautiful film I, and, that, and one of the great things i love about it and i think why a lot of people are, are loving it so much is because it's it's so beautiful and and people are kind of taking it on this and we brought the point. I mean, there is. I feel like there is a deeper kind of level where it is almost not predatory, but there is there is a, the, the struggle right. there, and a lot of people aren't going to get that from a first viewing. I think okay, and I I want to reiterate. I don't think that this is a bad film. I think there's I, just there are, there with, are a lot of things that I actually really love about it. There are moments like the way that the camera sort of like moves about landscapes. I find particularly like enticing, or even like that shot. I guess we can call it a scene where Army Hammer and Timothy Chalamet are like walking around that statue and it like pans up to the statue and we see sort of this very like rigid um, kind of like yeah, very a like a, like a rigid like form of masculinity that is sort of being upended in sort of that relationship. And then we like in that same shot, we pan up to the cross, which is like mm -hmm. a religious sort of like oppressive sort of system that, you know, historically has kept that kind of masculinity of the statue in place and also has sought to put down like the masculinity provided by and I Timothy guess... Chalamet and Army Hammer. So there are moments yeah. that I really love about this film. I think this is also tangential, but the Sufjan Stevens songs for me, oh. while they are beautiful in their own right, there's something about the way that the score is constructed that when I, you can like immediately tell when a Sufjan Stevens song starts, yeah. I feel there's instantly recognizable. And for me, that took me out but the last song, that's a, the last Sofian Stevens song that plays over the last shot, I thought was like, like such an incredible moving moment. Yes. And I wish they didn't put the credits over that shot just because it's like so... It's taking away from his performance. Well, it's distracting, but I mean, it's like I like his face is doing so much work that I just wanted to like... I know, and there's like stuff that I, I thought that was, I thought that was unnecessary too. Um... And, I th and I'm glad you brought up the, the musical score because that was one of the reasons why I was really excited to see this movie is because I could, when I saw the trailer, I'm like, okay, that's a Sufjan Stevens song. And I'm a really big Sufjan Stevens fan. Me and too. so I was excited for that to come in. And I, I was actually, along with the, the score, I'm, I'm a big fan of just musical scores in general. And along with his new songs he brought in, I thought the score was really well done. Um, that's kind of one of the reasons why I think oh, this movie is also getting a lot of a lot of praise. Is is it the, the classical music score is so well done, and it and it helps the film move. And even though to maybe a more kind of just a basic film viewer, this is this is a pretty long runtime. I mean, it's two hours, a little over two hours. And I mean, someone who's a basic filmmaker. I mean, I know I know you guys again. <laughs> Sam complains about movie length on the first okay, episode okay. of the shoe banter. But let me get to my point here. Admittedly, you guys, I think eighty minutes is a perfectly fine. Okay, runtime. but again, you guys are people who watch movies that are very very long. 
you have to think about it in a point of a view who's just going to like Marcus Cinema to see it. You have to, I mean, for maybe to you it's not a bit, but someone, you know, could see that as a problem, you know, and especially in this 20 and our kind of the area we're living in now where it's very, you have to see something new every 15 minutes. And that's why I, I think this movie is good because I, usually you see a lot and I think it flows very well, but it, you have to think about it in kind of this millennial kind of mindset we are now where you have to have something stimulate you at least how people see us is we have to have something stimulant every you know kind of 20 minutes or we're going to get bored and i guess uh, tangentially i just want to say i i i, I want to clarify because spencer was saying this as well i do not think this is a bad movie in many ways i think this is in fact a masterful film it is just a film that i reject in a lot of ways <laughs> it is a film that i was um I don't want to say repulsed by, but but I, I, I felt a magnetic field between myself and what this film was trying to give me. And I think the technical aspects, the storytelling aspects, the, the, the performances, all are trying to draw me in, but I felt within me a deep discontent watching this film. I think it's important to remember, too, though, that like whatever, like we all bring sort of personal baggage to every movie that we watch and ultimately like there is like a subjectivity involved like for me growing up in sort of like a community of color as a queer person of color there's sort of like there's already a distance that I'm bringing to the film already and so it's going to color my viewing regardless I can't be objective about that like mm -hmm. that's going to color like my experience that I'm bringing to the screen is ultimately going to color how I view the film exactly. on its yeah. own yeah, yeah so like the way that you're viewing the film like you're bringing your collective experience to the screen and like our collective experiences are like very different. So I don't think it's easy for me to sort of, it's impossible for me to completely like brush aside or this film or like to say mm -hmm. that this film doesn't have any sort of like merit or that there are things happening in this film that are worthy of praise and also just like viewing. I think, I mean, I've seen this film multiple times at this point, like, four times so there's clearly like it's clearly making me go through the process of like thinking about how structures are being played out in the film and like it's like clearly drawing something like I find something new interesting to watch about it in like a new way every time I watch it like mm -hmm. in the way that the editing like on the first watch might seem a little sloppy like it seems like almost like every cut that's made feels almost kind of like a mutilation of sorts and that like it's like it's so like the cuts are so harsh and yet, somehow that perfectly mirrors the struggle that Elio is sort of like dealing with and sort of becoming a fully fledged man while also dealing with the repressed sexuality that isn't, you know, um, affirmed by a larger society and only like can flourish and exist in this bubble. Mm -hmm. And again, I think it is also important to think about, well, like who gets to own that bubble and who gets to like be in that bubble, obviously, just like white people tend to be like the ones like on screen in their depiction get to be the ones that have these exploratory moments. And I think in this film, I really was kind of hoping for more of that exploration. There's like that scene in the end of the dad. And like, I know like it's very controversial. Some people love it. Some people hate it. <laughs> I don't care for it because I think there's this moment that the dad brings up where he's like, it's obvious that you, what you guys had is like special and like, it, it's like going to be, it's like one of the more powerful, like even more powerful than my marriage to your mother. Like it's like, there's so much to it, and yet I don't know how he sees that in that relationship when his when Elio and Oliver never explicitly discuss the queerness of their relationship or like never sort of sort through the muck of what it means to be doing what they're doing. And I think that's a problem like across many LGBT films that have come out in recent times is that there's never a moment where people discuss the working process of what it means to figure out your sexuality and what it means to perform your sexuality or act on your sexuality or even like perform sexuality in whatever circle that you're in. There's never an exploratory moment that is reserved for the individual. It's always just like, we're not naming this desire, we're just like showing it to you and that's what the exploration is going to be. Like it's always a physical exploration and it's never sort of like a sit down. What am I going through right now? How is this working out? And I think that's ultimately what it is for a lot of young people who are discovering queerness and thinking outside of binary systems and things like that. There is sort of like a very, not academic sort of like way that they're dealing with it, but like, you know, there's like 
if there's like an intellectual labor that happens in dealing with sexuality that I feel this film in its sort of fantasy, sort of like phantasmical like way ignores that I think is so crucial to Elio's growth as a person, right? Does that, did yeah, any of that yeah, make sense? Yeah, yeah. Like, all of it made sense. Yeah. All of it made sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's my take. <laughs> can, I, can I say one more thing about this film? Yeah, yeah fast. This, sure. is, this is the thing my friend Cole told me uh, on Facebook, which was, if Army Hammer wanted that nom, he should have eaten that peach. He, no. he ate a little bit of it. He did eat a little bit, but that's, he, that's if he wanted the full Oscar nomination, he should have eaten that peach. Also, if anyone's interested, the book actually spans 20 years in that relationship. So it's like, this Rather was like than very just oh, compact. Cool. I'm going to read that. We, are, do get are we, sort of, of we do get the context of it. We are out of time. Can Love. I say, there's, there's one word we should use to close this out, which is later. True. <laughs> um, yeah. Next week, Friday. Seven to eight. What are you doing? Uh, we don't know yet. Who knows? Oh, cool. Movie. I mean, Phantom Thread, probably. Yeah. That was so good. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> I'm so excited. I'm seeing it tomorrow. Sweet. Later. Later. Bye. Bye. Eighty-nine-seven KRUI, the Sound Alternative.